Welcome. This is Out of the Ordinary Books, where we believe that the books we read help us better understand the lives we lead. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And every week we share an Out of the Ordinary book and how it can help you make sense of your story too. These aren't book reviews or recommendations. These are conversations about some of our best friends, worst enemies, toughest coaches, most passionate lovers, and kindest teachers that line our bookshelves. We hope these conversations help you see the deeper story hidden right in plain sight in your ordinary life, too. Get comfy. Here we go. Well, Lisa Joe, I know our aim in these bookish conversations has been to relate what we're reading to our own stories and help our listeners understand their stories. But I have to say, I'm a little surprised <laughs> by the books we're choosing don't seem on the surface to be necessarily the most relatable. I mean, I shared a story about robots in some future <laughs> world. Now today, I, I think I know that you're going to tell us about some YA spy thriller. Like, really? <laughs> Did these books have anything? But first, I'll say, okay, um, I'm a little less skeptical because I heard from some listeners, I know you did too, after our last episode, and one in particular really struck me, um, our friend Sophie, who listens from France. She reached out just to tell me um, how much that conversation meant to her and how it had her really thinking about um, uh, past decisions, places she had lived, choices that led her to the life she's living today. And all of this came out of that Scottish philosophy detective novel series <laughs> I had shared. So I am loving that these reading experiences that are so varied, such different genres, different places, settings, characters, can yet really unlock our own experiences. So I do think, though, today will be the test. Lisa Joe, <laughs> if you can help us make sense of our own stories <laughs> through a YA spy thriller... <laughs> Then I think we can rest our case. I <laughs> am you up do for it? the challenge. <laughs> can you do it? <laughs> I'm so excited about this series, you guys. It's interesting for many reasons. I'm not generally a big YA reader. I sort of feel like you maybe read more of it because I know you read a lot of stuff to prepare as your kids are reading or your teens are reading. So I feel like maybe you have read more YA than I do normally. But this particular series, when I, I can't even remember how or who recommended it to me, but when I started reading it, it had a feel where the language is trying to be accessible, right, to a young audience reader. Uh, but the storyline definitely is sophisticated. I mean, hmm. not that YA isn't, but in some places it isn't, right? But this right. is a sophisticated storyline. It's... It's by the author Allie Carter, and I love this description about her. It says, Allie Carter, this is on her own webpage, Allie Carter writes books about sentinels, spies, thieves, and diplomats. And I love that about her, especially because she's from Oklahoma, Christy. It's not like she lives in Washington, <laughs> D.C. She grew up studying agriculture. That oh, is like the area she worked in initially. Yes, she still lives in Oklahoma. Okay. And there's this great line I knew you would love. It says, she lives in Oklahoma. 
Oklahoma where her life is either very ordinary or the best deep cover story ever. Oh, I do love that. Oh, (laughs) deep cover. Nice. So (laughs) So great. I just think she's so wonderful. She's so interesting because she was born the exact same year I was, 1974. And Allie Carter is actually a pen name. It's not even her real name. So mm. she is kind of like undercover. Mm. Her her real name is Sarah, Sarah Lee Fogelman. And she, yeah, she was born and bred in Oklahoma. She studied agricultural economics at Oklahoma State University, which I love so much. And then she got her MA in agricultural resource and managerial economics. And now she writes spy books for, for a young audience. This is <laughs> so great. So I feel much. like... This is like a maybe a subplot in our conversation. The sense that that maybe you make certain decisions in a certain direction, and that is not necessarily telling you everything your life is going to be. I think we've had right. conversations like that before, where we've said, "Hey, you went to school to become uh, an attorney, a lawyer. Right. I went to be an English professor, and here we are. And how did that happen?" And man, I love stories like Aren't that. They the it best? feels like life can be surprising and is full of possibilities that maybe we can't even always see coming. Right. And the whole, she has absolutely lived that parallel storyline of you and I. It says, you know, she went to school for agricultural economics. She's getting her master's. And then it says in her free time, she began her work as an author of two adult novels. And she started out as writing adult novels. Her first one came out in 2005. Um, But then she developed this great series of young adult novels. And she's really famous for a series called the Gallagher Girls series where essentially it's a boarding school for girls, but it is run, the principal is like a former CIA agent, and they're teaching all these girls, it's a spy school, that's what they call it. (laughs) So it's about these girls who go to spy school, and the main character is fluent in like 14 different languages, and knows all the self-defense, and her mission really revolves around this one semester at school where she falls for a totally normal boy who has no idea that she's trained in espionage. (laughs) Uh, the the allure of the normal, yes! <laughs> normal and the ordinary. There you, go. <laughs> there you go. So it's a lot, quite a long series. It won a lot of awards, sold many copies. But the series we're going to talk about today is called the Embassy Row series. It's a series of three books. We're going to talk about the first one, the first title in this series. I love, I love a good title. It's such a good one. Is All Fall Down. Mm, that is good. It's good, right? And uh, I think for many reasons, this appeals to me. I think it appeals to a young adult reader for many reasons. We all imagine, what is it like to travel? What's it like to feel like a diplomat? Diplomats are kind of like spies, but legal ones, right? They travel between countries. They don't have their baggage checked. They have special privileges. There's always been a mystique to the idea that when you're on an embassy in another country, you're actually on the soil of that country. Nothing can happen to you. I'm a sucker for all those movie scenes where they're in some country that's not America running toward the U.S. embassy, you know, like, let me in. I'm an American while some baddie is chasing them. And then the Marine (laughs) opens the gates and they dash through and they're safe. That has been a trope in my life forever. I'm from another country. I am adopted here into America, but we lived overseas. We lived in Ukraine for two years. We worked and lived and spent time with the diplomatic community. I traveled. I had a diplomat card um, for the work that I was doing. So just for many reasons, this is appealing to me. The main character in this book, her name is Grace. The boy she has a crush on, of course, is Alexei from the Russian embassy. You know, there's just like, (laughs) they take 
sort of teen, young adult drama and romance and then ratcheted up by adding kind of this international flavor to it. And the title All Fall Down comes from the fact that if you, I don't know if you're familiar with this idea of an embassy row. Are you, Christy? Do you know what that means? I do. You might remember that uh, John and I lived in Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C. for a while. So I remember D.C.'s the embassies there and all the flags. And, right. Yeah. And it really is that way. It's a, a street in the capital of whatever country and all the embassies tend to be in a row. I remember in Pretoria in South Africa, driving down, you know, we didn't call it Embassy Row, but Embassy Lane, the place where all the embassies are. And you can drive by, you see all the flags and they're often in different styles. They're beautiful. When we lived in Ukraine, uh, I became really good friends with one of the diplomats at the South African embassy and uh, mostly for the food. So he would put me on the <laughs> guest list of all the big events because they oh. would then have a chef from South Africa who's making all of my favorite foods. Oh, they would wonderful. have the favorite drinks imported, all the South African wines. I mean, I would arrive at those events. He and I would say hi. I would do a very cursory, you know, polite circle of the room to say hello to people. And then I would end up in the kitchen and I would just hang out there with the chef. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would feed me. And um, this picture that the main character talks about with the embassies is that when they're all in a row like that, like little dominoes, she believes her baggage, this difficult thing she's carrying in her life will spill over and if you knock one down, they're like dominoes and they all fall down. There's a whole row of embassies she can imagine taking out somehow through this trauma that she's working through. So the stories appeal to me on many levels, even as a 46-year-old mother of three children. I remember what it was like to be 16. I love the idea of how the author is able to use these foreign countries, this foreign setting really to heighten what is completely ordinary experience. Everybody knows what it's like to be 16 and to have a crush on a boy and to be awkward in your own skin and not sure if you can trust the adults. So I'll just read from Amazon the description of what the book's about because I don't want to give any spoilers. So I will say we'll be really careful not to give spoilers. The first book is called All Fall Down. And this is how Amazon describes it, which might be the safest way to make sure I don't give anything away. It says, <laughs> Grace Blakely is absolutely certain of three things. One, she is not crazy. Two, her mother was murdered. Three, someday she is going to find the killer and make him pay. As certain as Grace is about these facts, nobody else believes her. So there's no one she can completely trust. Not her grandfather, a powerful ambassador. Not her new friends who all live on Embassy Row. Not Alexei, the Russian boy next door who is keeping his eye on Grace for reasons she neither likes nor understands. Everybody wants Grace to put on a pretty dress and a pretty smile, blocking out all her unpretty thoughts. But they can't control Grace no more than Grace can control what she knows or what she needs to do. Her past has come back to haunt her, and if she doesn't stop it, Grace isn't the only one who will get hurt. Because on Embassy Row, the countries of the world stand like dominoes, and one wrong move can make them all fall down. Mm. Right? It's so great. It's such a great story. And I think what we really want to unpack a little bit here is that point number one here. Grace Blakely is absolutely certain of three things. Number one, she is not crazy. 
I mean, we all understand that when that statement is made, as a reader, mm-hmm, you're immediately right. supposed to question if that's true or not. I, I'm already thinking, is, is she crazy? Is she crazy? Is she? <laughs> so she's sure of these three things. Is she crazy? Is she wrong? Is she lying? So I have to say, I, I don't know. I should know this. Like in the history of literature, Lisa Joe, like what is the history of, of narration and trusting our narrators? But I just know my own personal reading journey, how it began. Um, you know, my, our listeners know my love for mysteries and especially Agatha Christie. And there's a famous Agatha Christie novel where it turns out that the narrator, who of course is your guy, is the murderer. Oh, no way. So, Which novel yes. is that? Um, it's, I think, actually, now I'm on the spot. I don't remember. I think it's the, the, actually, no, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say because then what if our listener oh, hasn't read true. it yet? I'll ruin true. it. But now ah, they're going to be skeptical ah. <laughs> every time they read an Agatha Christie. They're like, is this the killer? Is this the killer? Right. It might be. <laughs> so it's a famous, famous example of that trope of the unreliable narrator. narrator. And so, and I, I don't know if Agatha got it from someone else. She probably did. Or maybe she, this was very new with her. But um, ever since reading that novel, there's always this question in my mind as a reader of like, who who can I trust? And some recent examples that I have really enjoyed are the Tana French thrillers. So, they're kind of mysteries, kind of thrillers, and and usually the main character is a detective. But there is always this question of, is their perspective right? And you read the whole thing sort of on pins and needles, wondering like, okay, I'm get, I like this person. I'm, I'm on their side, but should I be on their side? And it's a really, it's a, it's like a good kind of nervous tension. I love it. It reminds me of how in our first book we talked about Clara and the Sun by yes. Kazuo, I can always say his name wrong, Kazuo Ishigura. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I liked how what you pointed out there is that he is a trustworthy narrator. So even though he's inviting you into what might feel odd or uncomfortable situations or storylines, what you've learned through his writing is you can trust him. He's going to take you a safe place. It will make sense. You'll understand why the story has unfolded the way it has. So this book is definitely... What's done well about it is that's how you are supposed to feel about a narrator. You're supposed to feel like you can trust them. And when you're reading this book, it has all those heightened emotions of teenagehood. I remember them, right? Everything feels like it's ratcheted up to the nth degree. Everything is extreme. And in this case, you have a teenage girl who is an army brat. Her father serves in the special forces. She's bounced around the world a lot. Her mother has been killed in some traumatic way. And she's now living with her grandfather, who is an ambassador in this country that we, you know, it's made up name. Adria is what they call it. It always is funny to me when they make up random countries, but all the other ones are countries. real. Like, <laughs> I don't understand that at all. So she feels very intensely about what has happened to her mom. She's certain that she knows the truth, but everybody else around her doesn't agree. And so you're left to wonder, okay, it's funny how easy it is to slip into the mindset of a teenager where you, it's me against the world and everybody's out to mm. get me and I am right. It's funny how as an adult, it's easy to feel that way, Christy. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And as I was revisiting this book, that's part of what struck me as we start to think about who do we trust? And we all have our own narrator in our own heads telling us this is the way the world is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you don't see it the same as me, you are at the best, wrong, at the worst, out to get me. And 
it was very interesting in reading this because while you believe her and you are for her, you can't discount the fact that a lot of how she's moving through the world is clearly as someone who has suffered a trauma that is impacting how she experiences the world. But she doesn't acknowledge that. So she will tell you about feeling lightheaded or how she's having a panic attack and then keep insisting she's right about this traumatic thing. And you as a reader, you believe her, but you're also concerned for her and wondering, is she she okay? What is happening? She seems out of control. And the progression of the novels is so wonderful because in the first one, you are her and you are for her and you believe her and anybody against her is the enemy. And as it progresses, you realize that might not always be how black and white the world is, that there might be people who appear to be against her, but it's because they are for her and they might know something that you, reader, don't know. And mm-hmm. I'll just tell you, as much as it's just an excellent spy novel, it's exciting and page-turning, and the mystery is so great, and you have to start the second one as soon as you finish the first one. And I should probably tell folks, we'll link in the show notes, too, so you can see what the other novels are. But the first book is called All Fall Down. The second one is called See How They Run. And the third one is called Take the Key and Lock Her Away. Oh, I love these titles. Take the key and lock her up. Yeah, I know. Aren't they great? All fall down, see how they run, take the key and lock her up. And I'm I'm just assuming, do they all come from nursery rhymes? Like, is she able to maintain that? Or is it just these first three? (laughs) So, well, these three are the only three in this series. And so so other series don't do the same with nursery rhymes. No, just just these three. And um, you have to read them in order. They really are as You have to think of them as one book, really, is the best way to think about them because the story continues. You don't get closure after the end of the first one. So I remember finishing All Fall Down and being like, what? (laughs) Like (laughs) scrambling, how do I get the next one? But as, as an adult reader now who is able to read this and really appreciate the storyline, what's interesting is this dichotomy between the teenagers in the book and the adults And there's this trope, right, where the adults misunderstand and can't be trusted and don't appreciate how difficult your life is or what's really happened. What I love about the book is that it ultimately inverts that and you realize the adults actually are trustworthy and they do know. And as a parent myself, I that's a pet peeve of mine. You know how in Disney movies these days, the parents immediately die and now the children are by themselves trying to figure it out or the parents are awful. And um, I really appreciated how we began the story thinking that, thinking the parents, the guardians are untrustworthy. And ultimately, we have to ask bigger questions. And I It's why this book is something I've savored. I think it's impossible in today's current climate not to ignore the parallels in this book in as much as we are, and maybe it's not just today's current climate, it's just how we are as humans. We're just convinced how we see the world is the right way. Like, this is how the world is. We just are certain of it. And if you disagree with me, there's something wrong with you. Like, there's not something wrong with me. I don't need to learn anything or change my mind. Um, I have to convince you that you're wrong or I have to avoid you. I have to run away from you. I have to block you. <laughs> I have to you know, show you all the ways that you are misguided. And it made me start to think just 
that about our own lives. Like, what do we do so that we are trustworthy narrators of our own stories? What does that look like? How do we trust ourselves? How do the people around us trust us? What does, what does it mean to be a trustworthy narrator in your own story? Right, right, right. Because I think we're, if we're good readers, if we read a lot, we've been trained to step into a world and ask questions and to acknowledge that we don't know what's going on. For instance, when I start reading uh, Ishiguro novel, I'm, I'm aware, okay, I will be confused. I only have some knowledge. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if I stick with it, if I pay attention, if I'm curious, if I ask questions, but I keep going, I'll, I'll learn. I'll, I'll, things will be revealed and, and so on. But, Okay, so I do that in books. Do I do that in life? Or do I wear, oh, this is what I think I'm more likely to do. In life, it's real, right? It's mm -hmm. not a book. And we feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think we, and I, I'm going to save myself here, I think I protect myself with my rightness, with mm. my the things I know, the things I'm sure of. And um, while we certainly need to be sure of some things, right? It's so good to have a romantic partner, a relationship we can trust, um, uh, you know, family members whose love we can count on uh, in our spiritual lives to feel like, you know, we, we're walking on a solid foundation. Absolutely. And yet, um, I think when I feel vulnerable or unsure or things, you know, I, I protect myself by assuming I know more than I do maybe or, um, and, and that rightness, that sense of my own rightness in the way I see the world is becomes a kind of armor when really I'm just trying to protect myself from what feels a very vulnerable thing, which is to say, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have these answers. I'm not sure about this. But it's so much easier to say, oh my goodness, those people, those ideas, those things, they are over there. <laughs> I'm here and I am good. I'm safe. I'm sure. I'm on the right path. Um, so it's interesting to think that in a book, I'm open in a way that it's harder to remain open in life. I feel like if I'm going to live my life with that kind of openness, I, I really have to have some kind of way down deep trust. For me, that would be in, in God. Like ultimately, I'm loved. Ultimately, I'm known. And ultimately, I'll, I'm, I'm safe and held. So then I can be open, you know, to other people and new ideas and questions. But yeah, I'll be honest, I don't, that is not always the first go-to for me. Instead, it's like, oh, well, I don't have to worry about that because I know this. I know, especially when at a surface level, a lot of tropes play out to be true. So here's what I'm saying. Let me give you a real life story. So when I, when Pete and I had just been married for a few years, he got a fellowship to move to Ukraine and do research. It was right in the wake of 9-11. It was a national security fellowship that he had. He was going to do language study in Ukraine. And I remember when I went in to tell my boss at the law firm where I was working that I needed to resign because I was moving with my husband to Ukraine on a national security fellowship, his first words to me were, is Pete a spy? And I thought back, well, A, if he was one, do you, I think I'm going to say, yes, that's what he is. He's a spy. <laughs> but what's funny is the more I said, no, of course he isn't, the more convinced all the attorneys I worked with became oh. that my husband was like some deep cover operative moving overseas. And I just laughed and I said, no, I'm telling you, like, he's like a nerd. He's a poli-sci nerd studying Ukrainian. And they're like, exactly. <laughs> But when we arrived in Ukraine, I did. I had all these preconceptions about what Eastern Europe was like. Um, you know, this was 
post fall of communism, but Ukraine was still pretty closed country. When we arrived, I'll just never forget it. I felt like I'd stepped into a movie. Nobody spoke English. Everything was in Cyrillic. We had to turn our passports over at the hotel. You have to give your passports when you go up, when you stay at a hotel. There are people who wanted to take photographs with us because they'd never met an American before. And after living there for a few years and learning basic street Russian so I could get by, I one of my great claims to fame would be able to like hail a taxi. And by taxi, I mean there are these little old Russian grandpas who drive around in their old Lada cars, these like crazy Soviet tiny cars, you know, picking up tourists to give them rides places. Like it's nothing formal. You wave your finger, you would negotiate the amount, you say where you're going. The whole thing happens in Russian. They don't speak any English. And then I would always take it as a huge compliment if they couldn't figure out where I was from. And so, yeah. you know, if they couldn't immediately place me as an American, it felt like a victory. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so they'd, they'd ask, you know, are you Canadian? Are you from Holland? Like, where are you from? And eventually they would realize I'm American. And then there's this great expression in Russian where they would say, if it's not a secret, can you tell us what you're doing here? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, then, and then sometimes if I was feeling cheeky, I would say in Russian, Это секрет. it's a secret. And <laughs> which of course is ridiculous, you know. And they would always drop me at the the UN building where I worked. And I had a a diplomat card for working for the UN. And I remember when we would come in and out of the country at the airport, especially when you're leaving and you have to go through customs and see if there's anything to declare, et cetera, there'd be these huge lines of people waiting and there'd be no real order. Everybody's just mashed in this waiting hall. I'd have huge bags because Pete and I are like going back and forth once a year, bringing clothes back and forth. And I remember I would just wave that diplomat card and it was like parting the Red Sea. They would just bring me through. Hmm. I'm saying all this to say, see how on its surface it can look like, oh, it is like a spy novel and you feel suspicious Mm -hmm. of people and those people are different than we are. And, you know, they don't see the world the way we do. And they were wrong the whole time during communism and I'm not trying to convince anyone of the merits of communism here, but what right. I am... It's still very, very us and them, like very clear. They're on that side, we're on this yes. side. Yes, look how they dress yeah. and they all wear black, long leather coats and shopka hats. And here's the thing, though. When you get to know people on an everyday neighbor level, we are the same. They, We fell in love with our friends there. We got invited over for tea. Babies cried. There were christenings. There were weddings we went to. Brides were excited about picking out the right dress. I got to be a bridesmaid. We worried that we had run out of mascara. I had to rush out to the pharmacy in the morning to get brand new mascara for my friend (laughs) Masha. Then we had that problem where she said, don't you hate it with a new mascara, how it doesn't come out as nicely as the old one. I mean, these are like the exact (laughs) things I have experienced. No matter where I've lived in the world, South Africa, America, when I've traveled in Europe, there's this deep sense that we actually are neighbors in the the truest sense of the word. I remember walking home and having to buy milk, you know, 
I happen to have to buy milk from a little stand on the corner store where there's a babushka who looks like a scene out of a movie, right? She's an old (laughs) grandma wrapped up. She's got her big felt hat on. And I remember trying to order milk, which the Russian word is malako. And I ordered malako. I must have said it a hundred times. And she's like, shto, shto, which means what, what, what do you want? What do you want? And she's irritated with me. And she's looking at me like I'm this little young chippy who's being rude somehow. And I said the word like the sixth time. And then she said, oh, malako, and said it exactly the same way that I had. <laughs> and I just thought, you know what? Like grandmas get irritated. <laughs> Everywhere, right? Everywhere. (laughs) It is the same. And I realized I had been an unreliable narrator about what I expected there, what I thought it would be like. I think that, you know, in the movies, the Russians are the bad guys always. And, you know, Ukraine is not Russia. And Ukrainians have their very strong feelings about Russia. I learned a lot about that. And I realized that what we had perceived as threat at least from the West, they had experienced like oppression. I mean, they were living under the crushing yoke of communism, the poverty, the sorrow, the deep spiritual obliteration that had happened under communism. And I remember Pete saying one day, why were we so afraid of them? Like, why didn't Mm. we want to help them? (laughs) Like, it's... Mm. It was hard to see how communism had wounded people like us, you know, your neighbors, what their experiences had been like. And it was very eye-opening for me. And I cannot watch a sp- you know, any kind of action movie where the bad guys are Russian or Ukrainian or read a book like that anymore without just having this sigh in my mind of, my goodness, you know, let's do better. <laughs> because yeah. people are complicated and nuanced yeah, everywhere. Let's do better. And This book is so fun because in many ways it plays into the tropes of us and them, and then it deconstructs them in really entertaining and yet thought-provoking ways. And I thought I could read, I thought I'd just read here the opening paragraphs from book one. Yeah. I was trying to think what to read because I don't want to give anything away. But I think <laughs> it, for someone who's listening, thinking, why A? Like, I'm not really into that. Listen to me. This is a phenomenal book. And the writing is great. And the story is wonderful. And I always judge a book not by its cover, but by its opening sentences. I've said this before. If I read the first paragraph on Amazon and I can't stop reading, then I know, okay, this is a good one. Mm. Here we go. Chapter one. When I was 12, it's like the the greatest first sentence ever, you guys. It's so good. (laughs) When I was 12, I broke my leg jumping off the wall between Canada and Germany, I say. But the woman across from me doesn't even blink. I don't ask whether or not she has ever heard the story. I'm pretty sure she probably has, but I keep talking anyway. My brother said that the fall would probably kill me. But it just broke my right femur in three places, so I totally showed him. I see, the woman says, stone-faced, and I go on. I fractured my left arm when I was 10 and dislocated my right shoulder five months later. Have you ever been to Fort Benning, I ask, but I don't really wait for an answer. Well, you might think that the big tree outside the officer's club is climbable. Trust me, it isn't, okay? Where was I? Oh, 14 was the year of the concussion. There were two of them. We were stationed in San Diego then. I didn't break my ankle until we moved to Alabama. I take a deep breath. And that brings me to now. Now I'm here. And you're not bleeding, the woman says. What an excellent start. 
So <laughs> in answer to your question, Mrs. Chancellor, oh, it's Ms. Chancellor, Grace, I'm not married. Sorry, Ms. Chancellor, I don't mean to get into trouble. Trouble just sort of finds me. Behind her dark-rimmed glasses, I can see a glint in Miss Chancellor's brown eyes. Her mouth ticks up in something that isn't quite a smirk, but definitely isn't a smile. I can tell she doesn't believe me, but I also know that she would like to. Everyone wants me to be different than advertised. Grace, the new and improved edition. What Miss Chancellor can't possibly realize is how nobody wants that more than me. Well, let's hope trouble doesn't have your change of address card, she says. Your grandfather would like this to be a fresh start for you, Grace, a new city, a new home. We would like this to be a chance for you to get away from your issues. She could have tried to be nice about it, to be, you know, diplomatic. That is the purpose of this place after all, but I guess diplomacy doesn't always extend to teenage girls with my sort of reputation. Is that all? Miss Chancellor smiles at me. It's almost like she's daring me to top myself. Well, I did watch my mother die right in front of my eyes when I was 13, but you already know about that, don't you, Ms. Chancellor? Mm, so good. I love that it fell off the wall between <laughs> <Canada and> Germany. <laughs> Well, I mean, and you get there from the opening paragraphs, right? That mm -hmm. this is a character who's making mm -hmm. not the best choices. And I think it's interesting. She talks about having had a concussion. Mm -hmm. And she mm -hmm. talks about her name is Grace. I think that's interesting mm -hmm. in many mm -hmm. ways. And this is, you understand, going to be a question about somebody who is struggling to understand, to make sense of the narrative of her own story, which is why I think that's the great thing about books. They don't have to be self-help books. They can be YA fiction for us to also unpack the threads of our own story. Oh, gosh. I wonder if that is like the sub-theme of our whole podcast is they don't have to be self-help books to help yeah. us. <laughs> I actually think they're more effective if they're not. Right, right. So I'm excited to read this series. I'm really glad to know a couple things. I'm glad to know it that they're sort of cliffhanger-ish, that I'm going to want to keep going, but that it's a trilogy. There's three. So I, I like that. Whereas sometimes you want to have, you know, 15 books lined up. If they, if they make, if it's like they make you want to binge read, like, you right. know, some shows make you want to binge yes. watch, then I yes. actually don't want too many because yes. then that's just, it. you know, it takes the next, you know, six months of your life. So I'm excited to read them. But Lisa Joe, I'm even more, I think, interested in holding on to Peter's question, why were we so afraid of them? Um, because the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we listen to, the stories we choose to listen to, um, often do that. They make us afraid of, of other people. Mm. And they make us afraid of other human beings who we don't actually know. Maybe we've never met. Mm -hmm. And how often do those stories if if we were to be in relationship, how often would we say what Peter said? Mm -hmm. Why were we so afraid of them? And maybe that's enough, even if I don't know the them that I've put over there mm -hmm. <laughs> in the us and them. Even if I don't know them, can I hold on to that kind of self-questioning question that that sort of undercuts my own certainty to say, maybe if I got to know them, or if I sat down and talked about that idea, or if I sat and understood why they they hold that that position on this issue, um, Maybe I would no longer feel the way I feel today. And I would say, why was I so afraid? Why was I so um, annoyed? Why was I so distrustful? Why was I so opposed? Um, I mean, I think 
who knows? Like we're probably going to be surprised again and again. I cannot think of a time when I have gotten to know someone who on the surface seems so different from myself, where over time the differences became magnified. If anything, the differences start, you know, they're there, but they, they become less, they're still there. But now what's added to the picture is these things we've shared or these things we have in common or, you know, common humanity, right? We throw that phrase around, but it really means something. Right. Why am I so afraid of them? And I think the second follow-up is why am I so sure of myself? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a question I would yeah. never have thought to ask 20 years ago. And dear listeners, I promise we're not trying to like manipulate these conversations to have some kind of political agenda. No. It's just where <laughs> they're coming from. And it does just feel like it's the kind of conversations I hope we're all having these days, right? I mean, I hope we're curious about what's happening in the media and how we all talk about each other instead of to each other. And all those cliches are true. But sometimes when you pick up a book like this, you're able to better see your own quirky tendencies to be that frustrated narrator who's so sure they're right and everybody else is so wrong. And I think when I read this book for the first time, maybe four or five years ago, I didn't layer that over it in the same way that when I picked it up again to prepare for today, it seemed much more obvious to me. Part of it is I think as I continue to mature, part of what I'm constantly doing is revisiting my life and thinking to myself, wow, how did I not know that? How had I? How was I so ignorant those early years of marriage? How did I not understand my husband better? I feel like this plays out, forget politics or the news or headlines or your opinions on the vaccine. Just think about your marriage or your children. I, at that core level, I have had to deconstruct large parts of my own story as Pete and I continue to do the hard work of really knowing each other. It's hard to know another person. And as you grow, you're constantly changing. And I hope getting better at decoding the other person. And so for me, a large part of what's happened the last few years does feel like a deconstruction of my understanding of Pete, my which affects my understanding of our own marriage, which affects my understanding of who we are as parents and who our children are. I think books like this are a good reminder that we can be really sure the world is one way. And it might be. There might be pieces of it. You know, there are mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. this story. There are pieces Grace got right, but there are also pieces she got wrong. And she has to go on this journey to figure that out. And what's beautiful is that the people she presses against the hardest, that she's the most frustrated with, they are not, they don't turn out to be the enemy. Like they are trying to protect her from something that she keeps beating her head against. And it just made me more, it made me want to be curious about who I am and how I understand the world um, and then give that grace to the, to the people around me. And I'll say this, we've had Pete and I this very interesting experience the last few, maybe like over a month now, he has just become obsessed with a Bible teacher and a podcast that he is like binge listening to. And You know, we've been believers our whole lives, like you and John, and it takes work, I think, to keep coming to the text of Scripture as if it's fresh, to be a learner, to be a curious learner about it. And there's this incredible podcast, it's called Lord of Spirits, it's by two Orthodox priests, and they are so wonderful because they unpack 
not just the meaning of the original text, but the cultural context that the text was written in at the time, so that you understand in a way that I've always been told, right, context matters, but by seeing them place Israel Israel's stories in the context of the stories happening around Israel that Israel would have known when they are now receiving the scriptures, it has had a shocking revelation for some of the things I've never understood before that came into technicolor light as to how different God was in how he set up our story. And I'll give a tiny taste so you know what I'm talking about. In the creation story, we are all familiar with it. Here's God. He creates a garden. He puts two people in it. They're in his image. He breathes life into them. What I hadn't realized is that in that context, there are, of course, many, many creation myths that were operating in the time, in the ancient world, many stories about how gods were made. And interestingly enough, they were always stories about how a god was made or how a god came to life. So, there would be a temple constructed. The temple would usually be at the top of a hill or a beautiful lush area. A god would be formed out of wood or gold or bronze or whatever and put in this place. And then the people would have a ceremony called breathing life into the nostrils where the god is now brought to life. And now they come and petition the god to take care of them. And here is our God now as he writes his creation story and completely inverts the myth that's around them, putting the focus on himself as the creator, creating his creatures, breathing breath into them. They are made in his image. And that's why the stories in scripture are so powerful because they're not just operating on a here's what I believe level. They're operating in it. Here is how God's kingdom is completely different than the kingdoms around. And as Pete and I listen and learn and study these new cultural contexts that we hadn't been familiar with, it's opening our eyes in this whole new way to be curious about what I believe and what how I've always perceived what XYZ on the page means and maybe how I've missed like a huge chunk of the story. I keep saying to Pete, how can I be 46? <laughs> like learning all these things about scripture's context I didn't know before. And I wasn't I wasn't curious in the same ways. I didn't need it in the same way. But it has created in me a humility, I guess, that wants to approach a lot of life, not assuming that I know everything and my perspective is the only one. And it's always scary to do that. We want to like clench our fists and be like, no, 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 the way I've believed it is true. I mean, that's why wars are fought when it comes to mm -hmm. faith, right? <laughs> I mean, that's why the whole crusades happen. That's why all throughout history, anytime we talk about faith and disagree, there's such a touch point. But I guess my point is I'm saying a YA novel can help us release the clench we have <laughs> on all the sacred truths we're holding on to. I just want to invite everybody to say, maybe we aren't the most trustworthy narrator out there, no matter what the topic is we're talking about. Excellent. I love how you've uh, ended us here with the sense that, and that's good news because there's so much more to learn and it can be really fun and it's an adventure and it's not um, actually a terrible experience full of like crippling self-doubt but actually a lot of fun like hey guess what there's still more to discover that makes me excited to keep going and excited to ask these questions and uh, excited to stay curious so thank you yeah thank you and i am really looking forward to your book review after you've read this and i want to hear from lily too because i'm oh, so good, curious good. Yes, i will be passing it on to my teenager for sure i know thank you, lisa joe this is one of those ones i me and lily might have to go into a corner and have long extended conversations <laughs> because i need <laughs> someone to talk more with 
But yes, here's to staying curious as teenagers, but also as adults. If you enjoyed today's conversation, won't you take a moment right now, open up that podcast app and look for the subscribe button right next to our podcast profile image. And we think this podcast is best enjoyed with friends. So tell a friend, click share episode in your podcast app and send a friend our link.